Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Bob Save the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. And then I sit down with Jessica Pishko, who investigates abuses of power performed by sheriffs. You know, it's like the other half of what we do. We spend so much time on police, but Jessica really digs deep into the world of sheriffs. And y'all, there's so much we didn't know. The word for this week is about system not psyche, system not psyche, system not psyche. That the system is often what we are pushing and challenging. It is the root cause of why these inequities exist. People want to make it like something's wrong with the person, which is why we have poverty, which is why we have hunger, which is why we have homelessness. Like the person's psyche was broken. And they do that as a way to take your focus off of a system that leads to certain outcomes. And we always remind ourselves, system, not psyche. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. I, 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 and this is Dre at DIY on Twitter. Uh, I will never forget that week that you introduced yourself as I, I, Clint still makes me smile. Wasn't that just last week? It was. I was trying to give you a benefit of some distance, but yes, it was last week. It was a real mistake. <laughs> oh, no. uh, this has been quite a week. Hasn't it, though? I mean, let's see. Bloomberg is out, which I don't think anybody over here is shedding a tear over. Klobuchar has endorsed Biden. Pete Buttigieg has endorsed Biden. Kamala Harris has endorsed Biden. Cory Booker has endorsed Biden. Better O'Rourke has endorsed Biden. And our dear, sweet Elizabeth Warren, who you all know, if you listened to a couple episodes ago, many on this podcast were fans of her policies, fans of her candidacy. Not everybody endorsed, but uh, there was certainly positive conversation about her candidacy for the presidency. And as the last woman standing with any kind of viable pathway, she's now out of the race. There was a lot of movement this week. There were also a lot of tears shed this week uh, and a lot of intense, intense feelings. How are y'all? How are y'all dealing with this new news? Yeah, I think... uh... And we've talked about this a lot, and I think it is, you know, given our roundtable, it is no surprise to anyone that we admired a lot of who Elizabeth Warren was and what she stood for and what her campaign meant. And as I kind of reflected on on her dropping out, I was thinking about the presidential candidates that we have had over the course of my lifetime. And I think there is a strong case to be made that Elizabeth Warren is in many ways a sort of, and if this is not to overhype it, but like candidates like her do not come around very often who matched the policy chops, the progressive ideology, the commitment to empathy, the commitment to an intersectional framework of thinking about the world, who had what is pretty universally agreed to be like one of the most robust, competent, diverse staffs in recent presidential history. And it just feels so clear to me that if Elizabeth Warren was a man, it would be a completely different set of circumstances. And it is... It is hard not to say that sexism 
and the myriad of ways that sexism manifests itself, both in people's direct sexism and then people's unwillingness to cast a ballot for her because of their perceptions of other people's sexism is a large, large, large part of what tanked her campaign. I also know that this is not the end of Elizabeth Warren. This is not the the last we'll see of her. I'm very grateful for her work in the campaign and all the folks who worked for her. And I feel like she's uh, she's got more to say. I don't know if she has more to say on endorsements because she's fed up with everybody and I don't blame her. So, But she'll have more to say. I'm, I'm sure of that. I'm still sort of recovering uh, from Super Tuesday and seeing all that happened. You know, I think it is, as the numbers keep coming in, we're still getting more from California, which for some reason not only had massive lines, but also is taking forever to count their votes. It's looking like Biden has a pretty substantial lead now after having sort of overperformed in Super Tuesday. It's sort of wild how we've sort of been taken on this ride from Biden being this presumptive front runner to sort of falling apart to now having a pretty substantial lead and it being a challenge now for Sanders and I think, you know, a lot of folks on the left to pull together the votes and the coalition to even have a chance, right? And I think that that is a challenge now. It's like a big uphill climb after Super Tuesday. So I think it will be not only more challenging, but it'll be a real sort of strain on the existing organizing and the coalitions that have been built to sort of expand and to do the hard work necessary to to bring new people in if they're going to stay competitive in the next sort of rounds of voting, especially as there continues to be more states that are coming into play from the South that Biden has had an advantage in. I, like everybody, was shocked that Biden did so well. Like, it wasn't that he just won, but it was like, wow, he really trounced Bernie in so many places. I'm looking forward to see what happens with Michigan. I also think it is noteworthy to remember that Black voters decide elections. And it's been fascinating to watch, like, to see how South Carolina happened and how overwhelmingly Biden won and just a strategy to get Black voters out. And I think about when Bernie went to Flint and it's like a room full of white people, right? And like, what does that mean? So just a lesson as we move forward that people take the black vote for granted, but you really got to build these relationships with black voters and black voters are always negotiating a like, how do we find somebody that's good for us, but also somebody that white people will support? Because while we have the block power to like decide a candidate, we know we can't do it alone. Like there will definitely be a set of white voters who will need to support that candidate too. I also think about the impact of sexism in 2016, that it's been interesting to watch the way this race changed so dramatically. Biden wasn't even like a contender when you watch the debates. And all of a sudden he is not only a contender, but like the front runner by a huge margin. And it just makes me think about how sexism influenced so much of the coverage of 2016 too. I still think about Hillary coughing and it was like she was dying that moment. And so many other things about Hillary, like Benghazi or all these things that like now we see with Trump are like not really issues at all. And with these presidential candidates, like there weren't issues. But when it was a woman doing it in 2016, it was a nightmare. And it's sort of interesting to see the way people celebrate Warren today who like didn't cover her. They dropped her off the polls towards the end, like before she lost. So... Yeah, I'm looking forward to see what happens. But Lord knows we got to get Trump out. So let me just tell all y'all now, I'll be the chief rallier for whoever wins the nominee. And I'll be right there with bells and whistles showing up at your door being like, please vote because Trump got to go. Samesies and doing everything to increase turnout and fight voter suppression uh, and fight for the nominee. A couple of things. One, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And as somebody who now spends time on television, I've just kept trying to bring her name up 
whenever I had the chance, not to kind of sway anybody, but simply to make sure that there is at least a fair shakeout here. Because this is what women endure over and over and over again, is that the chances are never fair. People keep tossing around the phrase rigged game. Do you want to know what playing a rigged game looks like? It looks like being born with ovaries. It looks like being gender nonconforming. It looks like being a trans person. It looks like being anybody but a cisgender male in this country, such that you are allowed to have aspirations, such that you are allowed to have the audacity to try to lead things, to try to fix things, to try to build solutions, to try to be accomplished, to try to be smart enough and qualified enough to do the job that 45 men have done. And now... The news. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, but there is something called coronavirus that is circling the globe and has impacted already about 100,000 people, including about 500 cases now as of today that might actually double or triple, who knows, because it keeps going up uh, in the U.S. And in response, you may have also seen a tweet or news about a tweet saying that getting a coronavirus test was not only extremely difficult, and there are all kinds of regulations now, and the administration certainly isn't helping, but that it costs something like $3,000. Well, it turns out that that is a rumor, that that's not true. Um, However, there are often costs associated with having to go to the emergency room, uh, having to go to urgent care, uh, healthcare in general in the United States. And we're seeing some leadership, not from the federal government, but from states and state governments, in particular in California, to make those costs go away. So Gavin Newsom, governor of California, announced this past week that he is ordering health insurance companies, this is both Medi-Cal and uh, private insurers, to waive all out-of-pocket costs for preventative coronavirus testing. This is obviously really important just to say, just to make clear for people, because we know that getting tested is very important to knowing that you have the virus and hopefully not spreading the virus, which can spread extremely rapidly. Um, But it is also an example of state governments beginning to step up in the absence of federal leadership and address some of the disastrous consequences of America's healthcare system um, that is extremely unaffordable. This actually comes after moves by other states to address another huge major health issue, which is the cost of insulin. So in Virginia, uh, lawmakers just passed a law establishing a $50 a month price cap for insulin. And in Washington state, uh, lawmakers have also passed a law establishing a $100 price cap for insulin. Um, So these things have all uh, come very quickly in the past uh, week or so, and they can impact uh, affordability of being able to participate in having health care, particularly in those states. Um, So, you know, this is good news for Californians. Hopefully more people's states will step up, especially on coronavirus and other issues of grave concern, uh, because obviously this situation is not looking good and is getting worse by the day. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals 
are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Obviously, coronavirus is on everybody's everybody's mind. And for my news, I'll just piggyback off of Sam's and want to talk about this piece written by uh, Eliza Shapiro, who's an excellent education reporter at the New York Times. And she was writing about how New York City has the largest public school system in the country, which includes around 750,000 children who live in poverty and around over 100,000 who are homeless. And for these students, school is often the only place where they get three hot meals a day. It's where they get medical care. It's where they even are able to wash some of their dirty laundry. And this is why the city's public schools, according to the chancellor, 
will probably stay open even if coronavirus becomes more widespread in New York City because it has to be understood as a last resort. Thus far, the city says none of its over 1 million public school students have shown symptoms of the virus. And thankfully, the federal centers of disease control and prevention have said that thus far, from what we understand about this new disease, uh, this new virus, is that children have been less likely than adults to become infected. Um, and so if there is uh, a silver lining, it is that. And especially as a parent, I think if children were more susceptible to this virus, I think there would be even a much greater sense of panic than, than I think there is. Um, so obviously, the implications of shutting schools down extend far beyond children. Large-scale school closings might mean that subway conductors and bus drivers have to stay home with their kids, that nurses at public hospitals can't come to work, and all sorts of things that potentially slow down the essential services of a city, especially and most concerningly at a time of a potential crisis. And so while it's true that millions of students around the world at this point have already had their schools closed because of the virus, doing so in a city like New York is difficult with the public schools because many of the students living in New York, as we have mentioned, live below the poverty line or are homeless and thus have no internet access and a range of other things that make remote learning, which is what a lot of college campuses and private high schools are, are moving towards, uh, it makes that kind of impossible. Uh, this all brings me to another point that is something I didn't necessarily realize for a long time, but because schools are the centerpiece of the sort of social infrastructure for so many students who are vulnerable and living in poverty, and it is the place where they get so many of their meals, and often the only place where they get many of their meals, food banks, if schools close moving forward in the next few days and weeks uh, because of coronavirus, if these schools close, then food banks are going to be even more important. Uh, and I was doing some reading and having some conversations with some folks who work uh, in the sort of food bank sector and ecosystem. And part of what they were telling me is that even though, you know, we all grew up with canned food drives and all of this stuff, and we were told like, oh, donate your canned beans to the food shelter. What is actually much more effective and much more helpful to your food bank is if you donate cash and not canned goods or not box goods. Um, rather than paying retail prices, food banks work with major manufacturers, retailers, and farmers to secure healthy food. And that means when you donate a dollar, you're able to put more meals on the tables of families than if you donated food you'd purchase at the store. And it also means they can purchase items that might be perishable. They can purchase fruit and vegetables and meat for folks who need it. And that is something that I didn't necessarily realize for a long time, but but I'm, I'm really, really glad that uh, these folks pointed it out. So if you are thinking about ways that you can help the most vulnerable in this moment, as it looks like we increasingly move toward a situation, unfortunately, in which more and more schools across the country are going to be closed and more people are going to have to stay home from work that doesn't give them paid sick leave, uh, that is hourly wage work, children and families are going to be increasingly vulnerable. Food banks are going to become increasingly important. So consider donating money um, and cash to a food bank so that they can use it in the best way they know how rather than donating uh, some canned black beans. That is really helpful information, Clint. I did not know that donating cash to food banks is better than donating actual food. Um, it makes perfect sense now that you've broken it down. And I'm really glad that you brought that up um, because it is, I think, a really thoughtful way for people to be in support of the important work that our community food banks are doing every single day to meet people's needs. And you're absolutely right. There are so many ways in which this unfortunate and scary disruption of life will have effects 
on down the line for a long time to come. In addition to what you have shared, we've seen a lot of conferences be canceled. uh, And a lot of people are just thinking, okay, well, I don't have to go travel. I've had speeches that are postponed. And I feel very fortunate to be in a financial place where getting money a few months later is not going to put me out. But for some folks, that's just not the case. Then when I think of all of the businesses, for example, in Austin, Texas, where South by Southwest is, that are now not going to be able to draw in the kind of business that they rely on during that festival, there are businesses that literally sustain themselves over the other 11 months of the year because of the one month that South by Southwest is present. Um, So this is going to have a long lasting effects in lots of different ways. This is also a reminder for me, this, this virus and this crisis, that everyone I repeat, everyone is in danger under a Trump presidency. We found out this week that the Trump White House uh, prevented the CDC from properly warning the elderly, from properly warning people with disabilities and people with chronic illnesses against unnecessary air travel, um, because essentially they didn't want it to have an effect on the markets. They didn't want it to have an effect on the election. Of course, Trump was out there calling it a hoax that Democrats are playing up to try to get him out of office, which is not only ridiculous, it is incredibly dangerous. Everyone is in danger under this administration. And the idea that the White House would prevent incredibly necessary information so that people can protect themselves from coming out is proof positive that, like DeRay said in the very beginning, it might not be our ideal situation all the way around, depending on who you are, but we have got to get this guy out of office. The sort of best rumor that I've heard, if a rumor can be best, is that in France, somebody was telling people that cocaine cured the coronavirus. And the French government the French government released an official statement that said cocaine does not cure the coronavirus. So I thought that was fascinating. The other thing is uh, how the Gates Foundation is actually stepping up to offer in-home testing kits for people in Washington because Washington right now has the most number of deaths related to the coronavirus. And I learned a lot in researching the Gates Foundation's approach to this that I didn't know. First, it's a shame that the federal government is like absent, that the CDC doesn't know who has been infected. They don't know how many tests have been given. Like CDC's a nightmare. Trump's a nightmare. Talking about a miracle is just going to happen. It's going to go away. And again, like the government should be doing this this testing. We shouldn't need the Gates Foundation or any billionaire to step in and help out with the public health crisis. But here we are. So what I didn't know is that the importance of in-home testing, and the Gates Foundation has learned so much about how things spread because of their work globally, is that in-home testing is better in cases where it might lead to an epidemic because the people can stay home. So they're not cross-contaminating people or, or doing any sort of contamination by going into a facility to test. People can fill out a questionnaire, they'll get a testing kit at home, they turn it back in, they get the results within a day. The only sort of interesting thing, and this probably isn't a problem in Seattle or like in Washington because they figured out a little bit more than a lot of places across the country, uh, but the results will still come through the local health agency. So if you get a local health agency that's like just not prepared to deal with the sheer onslaught of people requesting tests or a host of things related to the testing process, your town or city might still be sort of in a bind. This is also a reminder, too, of the immense importance of like local government and government in general that, you know, nobody's really caring about the health department until there's a public health crisis. Nobody's really thinking about, you know, why does the mayor matter da, 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 until you get somebody who who is so asleep at the wheel 
and you just assume that like, of course they would, you know, make sure everybody's taken care of. But you see people, you've seen those stories like I've seen them. People get quarantined and then they leave the house. Like that last story where uh, the people went to a dance. They wanted to go, they left out, they broke quarantine to go to a dance. You're like, y'all, this is unacceptable. So uh, it is really wild to see. I am not generally nervous about the coronavirus, but I am super nervous that Trump is president during the coronavirus because I feel like we probably could have gotten in front of this. And now it's like we can't. The other thing that I didn't know is that people are stealing masks and sanitizer from hospitals. That is nuts. Stop stealing from hospitals, y'all. Leave the stuff in the hospital. But the interesting thing about the mask hoarding is not only is it disadvantaging hospitals, but it's also disadvantaging construction because uh, masks have sold out at places like Lowe's and Home Depot. So there are all these construction projects that are, are temporarily being halted because there is no there are no masks for those people either. So stop hoarding masks. Chill out. You just need to wash your hands, get some soap. Like and most people, if you put the mask on without gloves and you've already contaminated the mask so people out here looking foolish anyway. My friend said that um, you hotboxing yourself inside of a mask when you're not sick is not helping you. <laughs> and I was, like, grateful for the comic relief in the midst of crisis. You know what I actually just thought about? And it is my privilege as a person who was born in this country that I just thought about it. Earlier this morning, before um, the New York Stock Exchange was closed for 15 minutes, Donald J. Trump tweeted the following, the best decision made was the toughest of them all. We saved many lives. Our very early decision to stop travel to and from certain places of the world. And it suddenly made me realize that this is very easily used as a justification, even when the crisis is over, as a justification for travel bans and immigration bans. That you can suddenly say, well, listen, we're, you know, you thought we were being racist when we closed off these countries, but really we were trying to save you from unknown uh, biological agents and warfare, right? And for the folks who thought that this thing was a hoax, Going along with that line of thinking is going to be pretty easy, even though, of course, we know that there was a coronavirus case at CPAC, but that's another story for another day. But I really just thought about how easily this has turned into a horrible election line during his campaign to say to justify the xenophobic banning of people from other countries. I mean, he's going to try that, but it's not looking like that's going to be a viable strategy for them because it's getting worse in the United States than it's getting in other places. And they are starting to reduce or eliminate the spread of coronavirus in many areas of China, in South Korea now. Um, there has been a decline in new cases so, I mean, we're seeing they've tested something like like tens of thousands of people. I think they test like 10,000 people a day in South Korea and the coronavirus tests are all free. So, like, I, I think there will be places that actually deal with this and address this crisis in a far better way than the United States. If the administration wants to make an argument that uh, preventing people from coming in is a problem, I think actually it's probably going to be other countries that prevent us from coming in as this gets worse in the U.S. So my news is about uh, Minneapolis. So in Minneapolis, they have done something really novel that many cities across the country could do is that they've actually replaced citations for equipment violations with vouchers for drivers to get those repairs done instead. They partner with a nonprofit called Microgrants. And what happens is when a police officer pulls you over for like a broken taillight or some other thing, instead of giving you a citation, and y'all know how it works, you get pulled over for the citation, you get it, you get busy, you forget to do it, your license gets suspended, then you're subject to arrest or like all this other stuff. 
Now, these vouchers can be redeemed at participating auto shops and they cover the costs of things like getting the bulb replaced or uh, some other things that are just equipment violations. And it's such an easy way to think about like how you ensure this public safety. It's better for everybody that like your car has lights at night. Like that is not just for you, but it's for everybody. So it's good that there's a process to deal with that. Do we need the police to do that? Mm, questionable, but like, should there be a process to deal with that? Absolutely. But if the police are going to be involved in it, it shouldn't lead to something that could ultimately lead to your arrest. And I thought this was like a really brilliant way for the city council to step up and really do this. Because when you look at the numbers in Minneapolis, they did 40,000 stops last year. And it's like, you see the stops are like racially based. You see all these things. And when the police have the opportunity to issue these citations that like can lead to something else... We know that this is how the funnel begins, but vouchers, simple, easy way to do it. And I think more cities should adopt solutions like this. Yeah, Duray, I'm glad that you uh, brought this to the conversation because it is like an example of how uh, individual cities and you know places across the country are experimenting with new ways of either limiting police interactions, uh, particularly on the issues where there are the largest racial disparities like traffic stops and searches, particularly equipment stops. It is also a huge problem right across the country. So we see, I remember when we did an analysis of San Diego, uh, we, you know, the data was pretty clear that black people were more likely not only to be stopped, but especially to be stopped for equipment violations. And then for those stops to result in searches and, uh, and even arrests in some cases. Um, in Minneapolis, from October 31st, 2016 through October 12th, 2017, so for about a year, according to the Minneapolis Post, Black people make up 18% of Minneapolis population, but 53% of those stopped for equipment violations, 53%, which is like a wild disproportionality and disparity. So, you know, again, this is a huge problem. I'm hopeful that this will alleviate at least the the criminal punishment and citation side of how this impacts communities. Um, but again, like the, I think the, the real solution would be to stop policing these issues in general and to not involve police or, or people who are armed agents of the state in enforcing equipment violations, um, but instead to think about, you know, are there ways of having somebody else, somebody who is not armed, somebody who, where there's not an opportunity to escalate to use of force being involved in making sure that people's cars like don't have a taillight that's broken. I'm really glad to see this solution. Uh, there was some more good news in the world of policing and the people uh, this week in my hometown of St. Louis. In 2017, a woman named Jessica Langford sued St. Louis City proper. She was attending the Women's March and was in the street with 10,000 other people, was ordered by police to get on to the sidewalk. She refused uh, and was arrested under a city ordinance that disallows, and I quote, anyone from blocking pedestrian or vehicle traffic or failing to disperse when instructed by a law enforcement officer. This week, a federal judge ruled in favor of Jessica's suit, saying that this kind of ordinance is so broad that it is deeply unconstitutional. The judge said that it allows standardless discretionary power to the police at the scene of any protest. Here's what I think is incredibly important about this, because the judge's opinion was really, really powerful. 
the judge said that this law authorizes police to end any kind of speech or any kind of sidewalk activity for, quote, any reason at any time, whether they dislike a speaker's message or simply want them to hurry up. Later, he goes on to say that the ordinance applies virtually everywhere a pedestrian might be present in public in the city. So the police were trying to argue essentially that even though it is a broad ordinance, that they would use it responsibly and they would use their discretion responsibly. And the judge essentially answered back that he cannot rule in favor of an ordinance and simply rely on the police to do the right thing. Obviously, if you've been listening to this podcast for long enough, we would certainly agree with that. We talk all the time about how it was illegal to stand still for quite some time during the Ferguson protests. And given that protest is central to this country's ideals, the idea that something this broad uh, would be allowed to stand is something that I'm glad to see has been fought back. Um, As a reminder, the founding fathers, as they are called, of this country were indeed protesters. Uh, So the spirit of protest needs to continue to be alive and well. And these are the kinds of changes that we see in Minneapolis and St. Louis that are the result of people putting pressure on public officials with discipline, with thoughtfulness, and with a clear uh, end goal and demands in mind. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. And now my conversation with Jessica Pishko, a former corporate lawyer who also represented death penalty clients and victims of domestic abuse pro bono. But these days, her calling is investigating the work of sheriffs across the country. There's a lot to learn, a lot that we learned, and we spent a lot of time on police stuff. Here we go. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having me. 
me, you, and Sam actually had a call not too long ago because we saw some things that you had written, uh, and then we saw your tweets about sheriffs, and we were like, you know, we spend so much time on police, we actually just don't spend as much time on sheriffs. And I'd love to know how you got into sheriffs as one of your focus areas. So I actually came about it in kind of a roundabout way. Um, I started kind of working in criminal justice, focusing on prosecutors. And one of the things that interested me the most about doing work with prosecutors and reform-minded prosecutors was how much of mass incarceration was not dictated by the law. So when I went to law school, you learn, you know, law on the books, you learn how to file motions, but... I kind of learned over time that there was so much being done that was not written in the law, wasn't being decided by judges. And so as I was working on prosecutors and I felt like, you know, the movement was doing well and, and reform-minded prosecutors were being elected, I started to look at sheriffs. Um, I actually was was very interested in the fact that it seemed like certain kinds of law enforcement were not solving crimes very effectively and many of them happen to be sheriffs. So I began to wonder, why is it that we have this group of law enforcement who don't seem really effective at solving crimes? They have very little accountability. They're hard to remove. They're elected. And so that kind of started me down the path of probing into what kind of powers they had. Why are they so hard to remove? What are the kind of things we can think about if we're thinking about sheriffs and reducing mass incarceration. What did you do before sheriffs and how has it been since you started to go down the sheriff rabbit hole? <laughs> so before I've had a very like kind of patchworky and long career. So um, I had practiced uh, law and then I was I had done a lot of work in family court and then I totally left uh, and taught yoga. And then I was like very focused on the quote reform prosecutor movement. Since I started looking at sheriffs, it's really been a great eye opener to me. Um, among many things, it's put me in touch with a, a lot of the great folks who do harm reduction work, which I think is incredibly valuable. It's also really, I think, intersected with a few things at one time, one of which is sort of the role of sheriffs and white supremacy and Trump. Um, right around the time that I started to look into sheriffs, you know, Trump had not been elected yet. And as soon as he was, I realized this is going to be a really big issue because these are people who are very excited to see him in office. They are great supporters. He's met with them multiple times at the White House. I think there's something about the sheriff that Trump feels sort of akin to, you know, the sort of lack of accountability, the fact that they can't be removed. These feel like things that he sort of has a, you know, spiritual affinity for, in addition to them being very helpful in getting him votes. So I think as time has gone on, you know, I feel more and more urgency about the issue. We know that local jails are very dangerous. People die in them with alarming regularity. We know that a lot of those people are not people who have even been convicted yet. And we know that the greatest growth right now in mass incarceration is happening in rural counties, which are places where sheriffs exercise the most power. So sort of in addition to kind of a broader federal issue about what are we doing? What are we thinking about immigration? How do we think about law enforcement and kind of a broad national federal level? 
you know, we also have these very local issues that sheriffs are extremely, you know, they are responsible for all of these aspects. And yet there's very few people who hold them accountable. Not, I think, because people aren't willing, but I think frequently people are very frightened. If you are in a small rural area, it's very uh, alarming to hold your sheriff accountable. You know, many of them are in office for two, three, four, five terms. You know, so you might have the same person in office for, I've seen up to 40 years, 50 years. It's a really difficult situation to have a change in culture, right, when you have the same person in office for decades. Can you talk about the difference between a sheriff and a police chief? So there are a lot of people who the experience of police is sort of one thing. And there's no sort of differentiation between like a sheriff is different from a police chief. Can you how would you explain that to people? Sure. Um, And I think that that's something that isn't obvious to a lot of people. A sheriff is elected by county. So the biggest difference, I would say, is that police chiefs are appointed usually by the mayor or some sort of city council and operate in cities. They're controlled by the city. Sheriffs are elected by the county. Um, And the reason I think many people get confused is that if you live in an urban area, you probably think very little about your county. So that's the main difference. And sheriffs have jurisdiction over the whole county, whereas the police force will have jurisdiction within usually the metropolitan area. Um, There are some places where sheriffs and police are combined into some sort of combined unit. The second difference is that sheriffs are elected countywide. Police chiefs are not. And as a result, police chiefs can be fired. I wouldn't say easily, but they can generally be right. Like they could be fired by the mayor. It can happen fairly easily. Sheriffs generally have to wait until their term is up before you can elect a new sheriff. Um, The other difference is just in terms of, uh, of role. So if you are pulled over and arrested, you probably aren't thinking about whether this is a sheriff deputy or a police officer, right? And both of them do that role. Sheriff deputies and police officers can pull you over on the street and arrest you. Sheriffs, however, also have a wide range of other jobs. Um, One of the biggest ones is they usually run the county jail in most places. They also do a lot of things, including transportation of um, people to and from court. That's kind of one that doesn't get looked at a lot, but is very important if you are a person who wants to make your court date. So they are the people who will drive folks from the jail to the courthouse. Um, They also provide things like courthouse security, election security. Many sheriff's offices are also in charge of school security. So any police officers within the school are often within the purview of the sheriff. They also serve papers. They evict people in many places. So they sort of have this like wide range of job duties that feel a little unrelated. Many of them are very much about money and financial incentive, which kind of gets to why the office of sheriff is problematic, because they have a lot of financial incentives that, quite frankly, police and police chiefs don't really have. Can you talk more about what those financial incentives might be? I think this is something that uh, has gone underexplored in the public space. So what, like, how is that different and what does that look like? So generally, this sort of goes back to the creation of the position of sheriff. So back when the sheriff was sort of first created in a role in the Americas up to like Reconstruction era, 
sheriffs, they basically were paid a fee to serve papers. So it was a very much like a fee-for-service job. That part of being a sheriff has rolled over into the modern conception of a sheriff. So, for example, things like asset forfeiture, often done by sheriffs. Sheriffs are not supposed to keep the money for their personal use. They can use it for the department, though. But, for example, there was a sheriff in Georgia who bought a muscle car saying it was to teach young people about uh, safe driving. And then he drove the car around, but it was nominally a a departmental car. So they have that kind of power. They also have the power to control the finances of the jail. This is something that, you know, people are looking at and deserves a lot further scrutiny. So we know that sheriffs can rent out jail space, right? So if you are a sheriff with a jail, you can rent out space to ICE. You can rent it out to the marshals. You can rent it out to the state. And you get paid a certain amount of money, basically per person, per day. One sheriff recently in Wisconsin was quoted as saying, basically running the jail was like being in the hospitality business, right? You're figuring out how much money to spend to feed people, to keep them healthy, to keep them housed. And this is places, right, again, where sheriffs can cut corners. You know, there were the sheriff in Alabama who fed his inmates only corn dogs and basically saved and pocketed the money. There was another sheriff in Alabama who used excess money, basically starving inmates in his care and using that excess money to do things like write checks to his gardener, buy himself a house, right? So there's kind of a lot of, like, petty graft that goes on because sheriffs don't really have to make their finances public. I think that that's something that's entering the public consciousness, but people are not aware enough of the fact that financial incentives drive a lot of the work they do. What are the biggest levers? And I ask because, you know, I spend most of my time on policing and we looked at use of force. We looked at uh, police union contracts as like the biggest levers when we thought about police. What would you say are the levers we need to pay attention to when we think about sheriffs? That's a really good question. So one of the things I've gotten really interested in is looking at levers in terms of sheriff budgeting. So I'll back up a little bit and say, of course, sheriffs will say that the main way to hold them accountable is through elections. I think that While elections are very important and we should pay attention, we also know that elections do not necessarily produce the best results, right? So Sheriff Joe Arpaio was elected four times. That doesn't mean that, you know, he was a good sheriff. Um, And we also know that there are problems, voter suppression, not everyone is allowed to vote, and not every sheriff has a really good opponent. And that's, I think, also a really big problem. So Other than elections, I think one of the important levers is looking at how sheriffs' budgets are assigned. This is usually done on the county level, so most counties will have a county commission, and county commissioners are also elected. So, for example, in some places you could elect your county commissioners. We see this right now in Los Angeles. County commissioners have come in. They are more inclined to listen to grassroots groups. They would like to decrease mass incarceration and the use of the jail. And therefore, they are doing things like freezing the sheriff's budget, examining who he hires and why, and sort of asking more questions, right? Now, the L.A. Board of Supervisors is particularly powerful, so they have more room to do this. 
But in most places, there are people who control the sheriff budget. So I think that that's a really important lever that people can pull. The other thing that I think is worth thinking about is what are the requirements for being sheriff? So I've been putting a lot of thought into what kind of people should be sheriff. And this is where it sort of deviates a little from from police, right? Most people who run for sheriff have a law enforcement background. So they're law enforcement or military. You know, as a result, most sheriffs are male. I think something like 95%. Most of them are white men. So there's very, very little diversity. I think it's worth looking at, should sheriffs be law enforcement? Is that their primary job? Should we think about doing things like, can social workers run jails? Do we need deputies trained in use of force to run jails? Or should we be hiring different kinds of people? I think that that's a kind of broad question that more people could sort of take an interest in and ask, you know, what are the laws? And this is a state law issue, right? What's the state law about who can be sheriff? And can we change that state law so that we can have other people run as sheriff. Because as I mentioned before, a big problem is that sheriffs often don't have a contested election. And so it's very hard to elect new sheriffs, particularly if you are sort of limited in your pool of people who can run. While police chiefs can be sort of imported from outside the city, sheriffs generally have to be residents of the county, right? So that means you need to find someone local who will do a good job. And often sheriff's offices, and this is also a little bit different from police, because sheriff's offices are generally slightly less, quote unquote, professionalized, um, sheriffs can do things like fire their deputies for opposing their policies. They can fire people who want to face them in an election. Sort of a largely patronage system, you know, can hire their friends or hire their buddies. And so it's not a system that's like really set up for internal accountability, which is another place I think people could look. And this, again, is something that is being done in the policing space. Ideas of things like community oversight, independent oversight with real teeth and subpoena power, forcing sheriffs to say how many people are in their jail and what for how long they've been there, right? We often just don't have that kind of data. Do we have any good examples of a social worker being elected as a sheriff or like some non-traditional person getting into a position like this? So one that comes to mind is um, Sheriff Tom Dart in Cook County. He does have a degree in social work and he has, I think, really striven to incorporate some of that into his office. He has, for example, a whole division that's a division that is basically criminal justice reform. So he is trying to bring a lot of non-police centered work into the office. I don't want to advocate for whether it's working or not working, but I do think it's like a really interesting experiment that, that more people should think about. Do we see sheriffs, because they're elected and don't report to a body or mayor, do we see them around the country sort of defying laws or defying like a city council ordinance or something like that because the only real accountability they have would be uh, the next election? Like, is that or am I making that up? Oh, sure. <laughs> I was just thinking of the Virginia uh, gun rights rally, right? I, I kind of want to separate some of the what they call constitutional sheriffs from many elected sheriffs. So first, there is a movement among sheriffs called the Constitutional Sheriff Movement this is a movement that Joe Arpaio was part of, um, that David Clark was part of, who was the sheriff of Milwaukee. It's a very right-wing movement, pro-gun, 
opposed to federalism, don't enforce federal law, right? So they have a very specific mindset, which is something like they are the supreme law of the land. If the state or federal government sets a law, generally in the range of the Second Amendment, they do not feel compelled to enforce it. So that's a pretty strong stance. We do see lots of sheriffs, for example, in the Second Amendment space, who very much oppose gun regulation, right? They will say, I won't do this. I'm not going to take people's guns. I'm not going to support these, you know, kind of ranges from maybe being like slightly more lenient on gun control laws to I think someone, one of the sheriffs in Virginia said he was going to deputize everyone in his county so they could all carry a concealed weapon, which unclear if you can actually do that. So many people like want to be sheriff because they are, you know, they feel that they can set the law. I mean, the, you know, the Bundy family were aligned with many of the sheriffs out in the West. That was, you know, they did not, they do not support the government. They do not support paying fees to graze their cattle. They're very much like be free. You know, at the same time, this is sort of the flip side of the coin, we also see some sheriffs, for example, Jerry McFadden in North Carolina, you know, is a sheriff who said, well, I'm in- going to exit my 287G agreement. I'm not going to enforce immigrant detainers. So kind of using that power to help people, right, reduce mass incarceration, reduce the number of people who are entered into ICE. So I think that that's sort of the flip side, right, is that there is this discretion. And then we can also see people attempting to use that discretion to reduce the impact on communities. I will add that one of the main things that I think is pretty notable is that when we see sheriffs try to use their discretionary power to help their community, we do see a lot of pushback, right? So every state has a state sheriff association that's generally very politically powerful. And when individual sheriffs try to enact, for example, sanctuary laws within their county, not asking people their country of origin. We see that the sheriff's associations will then push laws that will force them to do it. So in North Carolina, for example, a handful of reform-minded sheriffs were elected who did not want to cooperate with ICE. And we promptly saw the state association push a law that would say sheriffs must cooperate with ICE or else we can take them out of office. Now, that law didn't pass, but that's a pretty powerful statement, right? Kind of limiting the discretion of sheriffs that they hold very dear because they are using it maybe to help their communities to lessen the impact of mass incarceration rather than to oppress people. What's going on in East Baton Rouge? It's become notorious for a very dangerous jail where a lot of people have died um, unfortunately, the current sheriff did face a competitor in his reelection, and he still won. One of the interesting things about that election, actually, that I'll point out is that the sheriff who was running for reelection was a Republican, but had many Democratic supporters. So I sort of point this out to say that when we talk about kind of big Republican, big Democrat, right, like big parties, that the two-party system doesn't always work on the local level. There was a recent study of sheriffs' views on immigration, and it basically found that Republican and Democratic sheriffs were pretty similar. In essence, Republican and Democratic sheriffs deport about the same number of people. 
They also jail about the same number of people, right? We don't see a huge difference. So when we look at a sheriff election and we see a lot of local Democratic leaders supporting a Republican sheriff, we know, one, we can say, well, party may not matter. Two, in Louisiana, the patronage system is very, very strong. Um, The East Baton Rouge sheriff, you know, hires a lot of outside vendors to do a lot of things in the jail, to do the health care, to do other types of things. And so you can also see that they will get a lot of donations from people who run those vendors. Louisiana is has a particular problem that way. Their financial incentives are very strong. Louisiana sheriffs are also the tax collectors. So he is also responsible for collecting the taxes of East Baton Rouge. What does that mean in practice? Like, what does a tax collect, like, what does it actually mean? Basically, he collects all the money of people paying taxes in the parish, and then they have a sort of location where they keep that money. So they, like, keep the tax money in a sort of separate location, and they're in charge of maintaining that money and reporting to the state how much money they have. So it's sort of like they run a small savings and loan on the side with the tax money. The city spends the money. They just collect it. Yes, they just collect it. They're not they don't like put it in their pocket, supposedly, <laughs> but they do, you know, they they are in charge of that as well. Um I will also say sheriffs in Louisiana also get to um lease their jail inmates. So another thing you can do in Louisiana is you can lease your jail inmates, let them go work, and so you get paid The amount that the individual can get paid is quite low, so any extra goes to the sheriff. So he sort of collects the money from the labor of the people in his jail. There's an audit of who's benefiting the most from jail labor, and it found that sheriffs by far are benefiting the most in Louisiana from jail labor than any private company, that the sheriffs are making the bulk of the money from this system. I was in a county, for example, they jail inmates trim the side of the road. They work at the airport, maintaining the fields. They're hired by municipal entities to do quite a lot of the work. Um, And from the sheriff's point of view, this is a fantastic deal, right? Like when he, quote unquote, leases them out, he gets to keep the bulk of the money that they are getting paid. So the municipality has to pay, but the sheriff keeps the bulk of the money and pays a very small amount to the actual individuals. Is there another place that we should be looking at with sheriffs? Like, are there places like East Baton Rouge that we should be particularly paying attention to? I think that there's a handful of places across the county. You know, um, one of the places is in Bristol County, Massachusetts. The sheriff there, Sheriff Hodgson, has been a very vigorous supporter of Trump. Um, He is a person that I find is particularly problematic. He's gotten a bit of spotlight kind of recently because of high-profile inmates at his jail, and he likes to go on TV and talk about the high-profile people at his jail. But his is a jail that's very dangerous. It's the most deadly jail in Massachusetts. He has raised money for Trump's border wall. He, you know, talks about supporting Trump. He is a person that I think people should pay a lot more attention to. There's another sheriff in Erie County, New York, Similarly, his jail is very, very dangerous. A lot of people have died. And he is also a very vigorous supporter of Trump. In Erie County, he tends to very much terrorize people of color within the community. So I I think there's sort of these places where people are not as focused. Like, sometimes people tend to look in the South and say, oh, well, it's Louisiana. So what, you know, sheriffs in Louisiana, what do we think? 
Um, but I think there's what's interesting about sheriffs is there are places, sort of small spots where you have very, very, very dangerous and corrupt sheriffs that people are just not paying attention to because I think they're not focused on the fact that, you know, a sheriff in Bristol County, Massachusetts is putting a lot of people in danger, right? So I think that these are things that are really valuable to look at. Um, this year, one of the people up for election is in Tarrant County, Texas, which is near me. It's Fort Worth, Texas. The incumbent sheriff of Tarrant County, again, has been very pro-Trump, has spoken a lot of hateful rhetoric against immigrants and people of color. Um, he has been sheriff a long time. He wears a nice big white hat and it's also a county that is quickly becoming more Democrat, right? It's a, it's a county that's sort of changing. The demographics are changing a lot. And I think that, you know, the people in that county, that's not the kind of sheriff they want anymore, right? They don't, they don't want this person who says bad things about immigrants and, and crimes they commit and sort of spouts this hateful rhetoric. So there are listeners who are going to listen, going to go somewhere to learn about their sheriff. Is there a place where people can go to learn about sheriffs? And, like, what have you seen people do to make the sheriff more accountable or to change the way sheriffs operate at the local level? I think that this is a really good question and one that I think I want people to take some hope from this because I want people to believe that this is a, a system they can change. To back up a little on this question, for many, many people, the idea of having a sheriff is very painful to them. Sheriffs, we know, played a really terrible role in Reconstruction in Jim Crow, they were responsible for many atrocities. They prevented people of color from voting. They killed people of color. They helped the KKK lynch people in jail. Like, we cannot really escape from the fact that they were a vehicle of white supremacy. So for many people, the idea of supporting any sheriff is very painful and uncomfortable. One of the things people can do is learn about your sheriff. So you can figure out who the sheriff is in your county. You can learn about what they do. You can learn about their policies. One thing I urge you to do is to look and see if your sheriff is advocating to build a new jail. Many sheriffs advocate to build new jails. You might want to take a look at what they want to build and how much that will cost and what their predictions are. So usually sheriffs want to build new jails because they can put more people in them. Often that involves something like basically renting it out to ICE and having lots and lots of, you know, ICE detainees fill their jail so they can make some money. So they'll say, well, this jail will pay for itself, right? It'll support the community. I think instead people should push the sheriff and say, do you need this jail? Can we do these services in the community? In terms of resources, you know, the Appeal Political Report has been doing a lot. Myself and Daniel have worked a lot to put information about sheriffs. So I have some information sheets on there about the role of sheriffs, what they do, how do they run jails, how do they do policing. And I'm continuing to post things on there to kind of help people learn about what a sheriff is and what they do. So that's one place. I also think that the other way is just to talk to county commissioners. I know this is sort of a weird thing I'm, I'm harping on, but like county commissioners, so you might have eight to 10 and you can vote for them. Like figure out who your county commissioner is, get someone to run who's going to hold the sheriff accountable, who's going to say, you know, we don't want you taking money to do immigration enforcement. We want to know who's in the jail and what they're doing. We want to know how you're spending your money. Like that's a another accountability mechanism people can demand. And I think finally also demanding some sort of community accountability. 
Community accountability is something that people are also doing in the policing space. It sometimes, I think, doesn't always work as well because they just don't have enough teeth. But if you can get one that has teeth and has power, I think it's really important. Like, you need to demand that your sheriff sit down and talk to people and explain what's going on. They don't always do that, but I think people should ask for it. Boom. Thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 